Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, we're in Acts chapter 2, and as I asked you, open your Bibles there. We are in verses 41 and 42. Uh, We are on the third part of this series on the church's core activities. So allow me to read verses 41 and 42 again. It says, So then those who had received his word, his being Peter's, his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, the ones who had been added, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, as I said in the prior sermons, in this passage, we have the six core activities of the local church, which the early church would focus themselves upon. The key word for us over these next couple of weeks will be that word devoting or continually devoting themselves. It's also key to note that that what we're having described here is not about our private devotions, what we do on our own and what we do maybe with our family, but this is what the church did. When the church would gather, what was it that they ought to do? And this is something that I've been alive now long enough to have seen many, many different waves of ideas of how to do church. And and there are always new ideas and new ways, and people come up with a way that they think will be better. But But ultimately, what you need to do is go back to the Word of God and just understand, here's what the church does. This is what church is, and it's actually rather simple. And so we're not talking about private devotions, we're talking about public gathering, the gathering of the church for the purpose of worship. Now we learned about three of them so far. We've learned about baptism, membership, and the devotion to the teaching of the apostles. Uh, the baptism and the membership I uh, devoted an entire sermon to, and you can go back and listen to that if you uh, go to our website, go to sermonaudio.com and search for our church or just download the app and you'll have it right there. But baptism was something that was the first step in becoming part of the church. Having received the gospel, and they did not resist that, they embraced the gospel, the good news about who Jesus was. They confessed Jesus. They were baptized, therefore, in his name. And that was the first step. That was the first way that they enter into the church. And at that point, then they were added. And only after they had been baptized were they added to the church, and then I developed the idea of what membership means, that you have to become part of something, and that something is the local assembly. At that point, it was just the church in Jerusalem, but rapidly as the gospel would spread, multiple local churches sprang up, and you needed to identify yourself with one of them. And so we talked about two basic activities is baptism, not of infants, but baptism of those who had believed the gospel. In other words, believers' baptism. And then secondly, that they then joined with those believers and in some form or another became members. From there, though, they then began to automatically gather together for the purpose of committing themselves to learn from the apostles. Now, we, we learned that the apostolic teaching was simply the New Testament starting in Acts and going all the way to the book of Revelation. But the devotion I pointed out was never at the expense of the Old Testament because all scripture is inspired as we saw. So we never want to ignore or reject the Old Testament. But we also need to understand that the Old Testament is always pointing toward the goal. What is the goal? Well, some people will say it's the goal is Jesus, but it's not. The goal is actually the restoration of all things 
through Jesus Christ. It's where Christ makes all things new again, where sin, death, and Satan are are cast away forevermore. All of this is accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ, but we don't want to just stop with Jesus and forget what he's doing. He's redeeming and will ultimately bring restoration of all things for us to enjoy if we are in Jesus Christ. We see that the Bible then gives us prohibitions and commands and and ideas and wisdom and applications by which we might be able to live. And and in the mind of Jesus, we saw that to love him is to keep his his commandments. If you really abide in his word, then you will prove yourselves to be one of his disciples. And so we saw the importance of the teaching and the importance of the word Now, in our age, what we have is people who happily coexist with two separate ideas, the idea that there is scripture and then there's life. But the Bible would never confuse that. Scripture is our life. We are to conform ourselves to the word of God. And that's why Jesus can make such an absolute statement that you cannot serve God and money. You will either serve one and hate the other or the other way around, but you cannot do them both. And in America, we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out how close to loving money we can get without actually loving money, because we really don't want to give up money. And we don't want to stop pursuing the pursuit of money. Now, you can replace money with just about anything else. You cannot love your wife more than you love Christ. You cannot love your husband more than you love Christ. You cannot love your children. You cannot love your job. You cannot love your country more than you love Christ. Anything that causes you to have a love for that, that replaces the love for God, meaning where your loyalty is, is one of idolatry. And so Christ is able to make that absolute statement. We have to understand that the word is absolute, and the word is something that we must conform our lives to. Now, we also saw that all of it's driven by the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the things you're going to see in Acts is how how the Holy Spirit works. And you're going to see, some people have actually argued that the book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's how the Holy Spirit, now indwelling the church, moved out with the gospel and converted people to Jesus Christ. But notice in in Acts 2, nowhere does it say that the apostles then issued a command to come and gather. They just simply gathered. Why? Well, that's actually because of the Holy Spirit. Now that they are indwelt by the Spirit, they have this common bond. Maybe if they don't even grasp that they have it, but they have this common bond that is the Holy Spirit. And that what happens then is that they instinctively want to be together and to gather together. And all of that is to learn from the apostles. And so we saw that the apostolic teaching is not something lesser than Jesus's words, but rather they are Jesus's word that, that Jesus actually told them in uh, John chapter 16, that he would bring through the Holy Spirit to mind all that he taught them so that they could then teach us. And we saw then that that everything from the Old Testament to the New Testament is actually the Word, and that the Word we saw in John 1 became flesh and dwelt among us. That was Jesus Christ, that he is the Word that is in the beginning, that he is the Word that the prophets spoke, so that when the Word of God came to the prophets, this is the Son, that his Word is what the Holy Spirit brought to mind with the apostles So to not to do his word is to not be a follower of Christ. All of that starts in Genesis 1-1 and ends in Revelation 22. And so there's a few things worth noting in this introduction, and then we'll move right into the bulk of this sermon. The first thing that you should notice is that right away at the very beginning of the church, there's already a basic structure. Now, you may ask yourself, why? Why is this important? But you already see that church is gathered, and they're now devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, um, they were now able to define those who were the teachers and those who were not 
the teacher. So already a basic structure is showing. And I point this out because there's always movements. And it's been going on since the beginning of the church where people try to argue for an unstructured church. Maybe you've been part of that over the time. In the 70s with the Jesus culture and the Jesus movement, it became really popular. We'll just kind of gather and we'll just all experience things down there at the beach in Southern California. And it'll be really groovy and, and we'll all get into this, this, uh, this fellowship together and, and experience Jesus. But the scripture shows quickly that there became a structure. The apostles were at a specific place and that the people would gather there and they would submit themselves to the apostolic teaching. What you don't see is the idea that each began to figure out what was true or what was doctrine. Rather, it flowed out from the apostles. In other words, if the apostles taught it, that was what doctrine was. They did not debate it. They didn't get to debate it. They weren't the apostles. They were the ones learning the apostolic instruction. And that teaching also is a central part of the church experience. Uh, This is something, again, that many people want to downplay, and they want to really make it. In fact, I looked at this one um, book. I'm trying to remember the author, and uh, it's Rethinking uh, the Wineskin. Um, and it's this guy who was a very popular author, and he was arguing that we need, really need to rethink how church is done. And he was trying to make the argument that really what church is is the gathering together for the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper. And it's just a poor instruction. Uh, Frank Fiola is his name. Some of you know of him. Uh, bad book, not worth your time. But it was a very influential book. In fact, it went through our church here a few years back. But there's very little there that was of any value. And what he was trying to argue is, let's get rid of the teaching. Let's get rid of these things. Let's really focus on the gathering of the church to break bread. But right away in the very early church, you see that what they gathered to do was to learn. Teaching is just simply part of that corporate life of the church. That's how we grow to know God. We come to church for an experience. The scripture says we come to church that we might be taught so that we might know God better. And as we know God better, then we worship. And so there's this devotion, a commitment by the people to learn, just as there was a commitment by the apostles to teach. So the people came wanting to learn, and the apostles came wanting to teach. Now today we'll look at the fourth activity, if you look down to verse 42, you'll see it, that they, not, they did not continually devote themselves only to the apostles' teaching, but also to fellowship, a devotion to fellowship. And again, it's something that was diligently attended to. It was not something they did begrudgingly. It wasn't like you had to make them come to church. Uh, it wasn't that they had to gather and they didn't really want to do it, but okay, we'll do it. It was something that they desired to do. They desired to learn and they desired to have fellowship and, uh, and practice fellowship. It's a natural desire because it really comes from the Holy Spirit drawing them together. Now, fellowship, that word is something that's rather loosely understood by you and I, if, if we're honest. And a lot of times we kind of vaguely sense that we know it, but we don't really have words to say it. Some people might say, well, I know it when I see it, but it's hard to put into words. It's kind of like the word worship. But many of you might think of it, like I mentioned briefly last week, of cold casseroles and bad punch. Others might think of it as just guys sitting in the backyard while doing a barbecue and, and they're having fellowship. Some of you have gone over to a friend's house and, and when you come back, your husband maybe asks, how was it? Oh, great, we had a really nice time of fellowship. But what, what does that mean? What, what, what do we mean when we say, I had fellowship, or I didn't have much fellowship? It's usually very vague. We tend to talk about doing life together, having community, but do we actually understand what fellowship is? That's what we're going to do today. So with that in mind, let's look 
at the passage, and then I'll develop theologically and biblically what the idea of fellowship means. Now, he says, again, in our passage, that they were devoting themselves to fellowship. If you have the English Standard Version, though, you have a much better translation of this section right here, because you have in it, it says they were devoting themselves to the fellowship. And I would encourage all of you who have uh, any other translation, and you know I prefer the New American Standard Bible, but you should add the word the in there, because it's there in the Greek, and it's important to note. They're being very precise here. So when you have the article in the Greek language, and if you didn't know, the Greek language is what the New Testament primarily is written in, with a very few exceptions, that it is, whenever you use a definite article, you are emphasizing the identity of something. There's no such thing in the Greek for the, the indefinite article, a, uh, like we have. They, when they don't have the article, they're emphasizing essence, the essence of something, the nature of something. When they place that article there, they're emphasizing not the essence, but the identity. So it's pick up a Bible in English, you can pick up any Bible, right? But if I say pick up the Bible, now you need to know which Bible I mean, because I'm now identifying that. So even in the English language, we carry that same idea. They were not just committing themselves to fellowship in general. They were committing themselves to the fellowship. So we need to know what the fellowship is and how that works. It's actually no different than the apostles' teaching. It's not describing the idea of apostles who happen to be teaching. It's actually focusing upon the body of doctrine that the apostles taught. So it's actually a very limiting statement. It's not just that the apostles were teaching and, and so th- this is it. It is that there is a body of truth that the apostles taught them and they devoted themselves to learn that. In the same way, there's a specific fellowship going on and they practiced that. So it's the church's fellowship. So what is the church's fellowship? What are we doing? Well, whether you know it or not, we've already practiced fellowship in this church today. And you did it, and you probably didn't even know you did it unless you read my sermon notes or you done this study on your own. Now, many of you think maybe you practice good Christian fellowship by gathering and, and you want to share needs to discuss and learn from the Bible. You want to pray for one another and encourage each other, but that's really still not what fellowship means. It's not the fullness of it. It doesn't capture the essence. Now, the term, some of you know this, perhaps many of you, is the word koinonia. Uh, Back in the 80s, it used to be cool to use that word instead of fellowship. Nowadays, it's cool to use community rather than fellowship. It doesn't really matter as long as you mean the same thing. But the Greek word is koinonia, and, and it has various words that are connected to that root word, all carrying similar ideas that help enlarge. In fact, If you ever learned uh, New Testament Greek, one of the first things you discover is that it's not, it's called, it's an ancient form of Greek and it's called Koine Greek. Koine Greek is from that same root of Koinonia and it means that which is common or shared. And so during the time of Alexander the Great, when he was off conquering nations, one of the things that he insisted is that as they went in and conquered a nation, they also brought their, their philosophy, their culture, but most importantly, their language. And so everyone who was conquered had to learn Greek. And the reason they did that was it enabled a massive empire to now talk And so everyone knew Koine Greek. You may have kept your own language, but you also learned Koine Greek, and it was the, it was the speech of the masses. So then when the Romans came in, they kept that. Everyone knew Koine Greek. And so now with the Roman Empire, it established this large realm of peace. And so when the gospel came through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was a common language to share the gospel, and there was a place of safety for the gospel to go out. And so it was a critical time. So Galatians 4.4 4 says 
that in the fullness of time, God sent, excuse me, God sent forth his son. That was not just a happenstance, but literally entire nations had been conquered and, and the entire world was being moved by the hand of God to establish the right time in his mind for the gospel through Jesus Christ to come into the world. It's kind of cool as you learn it. So think about that. There's this common shared language. So the term koinonia, it talks about mutual interests, sharing, communion. That should give you a hint right there, communion. But it also involves a a close relationship where you can feel at home to develop a shared life. I need you to listen carefully to how I'm describing this and start thinking because I'm going to build off of this. So it's mutual interests, a sharing, a communion, a close relationship where you now can begin to experience a shared life. So this participation in a shared life, guess what we also call it here in modern church language? We call it giving. When we ask you to give or you are giving, meaning money, that is built into the idea, actually, of koinonia, whether you knew it or not, and we'll develop that in this sermon. Along with that, we can get a secondary term that speaks of being a partner or a companion. So you can think about like a a marriage where two individuals come together and now they begin to share life. And at the first, that's kind of awkward, right? You're, You're learning. But as you get older and older and longer and longer, you just learn to do life and share life together better if you're least faithful to that because of that shared experience, that koinonia, that fellowship that you have with one another. So with that in mind, that's what it means. How do we apply that? What's that look like? Well, the first answer to that is right here in Acts 2.42. It is a sharing of our mutual faith in Jesus Christ. Now get this, through the Lord's Supper and prayer. How do you do fellowship? Well, we just did it. We've had prayer and we've had communion. That's why it's called communion, by the way. It's the Lord's Supper and prayer is how we have fellowship and that's how they have fellowship. Fellowship here is far more defined than we tend to. Again, we tend to make it vague, but here in this passage is very, very specific. The structure of this, uh, this passage in the Greek demands that, that the Lord's Supper and the prayer is literally an expansion or an explanation of what fellowship is. So they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's first, and the fellowship which is the Lord's Supper and prayer. Now, there are many ways that you and I can share life. We see it every day. We see it in sports, activities, clubs, hobbies, and every other possible way where we share something. You get, uh, in fact, I was talking to a guy out in the lobby and, and we mentioned a type of tool called Festool. And, and his mom happened to be there and we both got excited and started yakking away about how cool that tool was. And she just kind of sat there with a smile on her face, nodding, not knowing one thing about it. She's like, wow, you guys really are excited about this thing. It's like, oh, it's a great tool set. We were actually having fellowship, not Christian fellowship, but that's fellowship. See, we, we shared that. And she very quickly felt not part of that, right? She was definitely not part of that fellowship. And you all know what it's like. You get guys together and you start talking about fishing or hunting or whatever it is, or whatever is that shared community you have. And the other ones can feel as not part of it because it's not what they share life in. So keep that in mind. The simplest is the family. It begins in the marriage, but it extends to the children, right? And so now your children begin to share life, and and all of you participate in this common experience, and you develop traditions and things that you do so that when somebody else comes in, they watch you, but they watch a shared life. It's just simply fellowship, and there's nothing wrong with it. But for the early church, 
The, the idea of fellowship that they experienced was the sharing and a partnership that was seen in remembering the Lord's death and through prayer. That is how they did fellowship. And this is why we don't ever take the elements on our own here. I remember one church uh, that I visited uh, years ago, what they had was they had tables around the room. And then whenever you felt like you wanted to partake of the Lord's Supper, you would go over and you tear off a piece of bread and you put it in the wine and then you would take it. And it would just, throughout the whole service, people would just kind of move toward the sides and do this. And I didn't like it because it was not really capturing the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The reason that we have you all come and take it and the reason that we send you back and then we all take it together is it's a shared fellowship. All of us together are remembering the death of Jesus Christ. All of us do this. That's why we, we pray and we don't just say, let's just all have a time of private prayer, but rather we have a public prayer. We're asking you to now be there with us as we pray and those who are called up here to pray, they're praying on your behalf. Nothing wrong with a private prayer, but in the church gathering, there's a fellowship that occurs as we all pray and we hear the prayer and we, we give an amen to that and that together we have the sharing of our common faith. It's all very simple, but it's actually far more involved. That's why we also make a big point every single week to tell you, do this because you're in unity with one another, right? You don't take the Lord's Supper when you're in disunity because it violates the very essence of what communion is. It's a fellowship. It's a sharing. But we're not in unity. And so we're not in fellowship. And so we need to get into fellowship. Does that make sense? And so whether you knew it or not, every single week, you and I are participating in good Christian fellowship, whether you felt like you had fellowship or not. It's, again, it's fascinating. It's got nothing to do with how you feel. It has all, everything to do with truth. We gather together, we take the bread, and we take the cup to remember Christ died for us. He is our Lord and Savior, and we're here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship him. And when we bow our heads and we pray and we say amen as we hear the prayers prayed, we are sharing or fellowshipping with one another. So it makes fellowship no longer a vague experience, right? But it now moves it into the saving work of Jesus. The prayers are built around the triune God. We are praying, right, to the Father through the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. All of this is us sharing in that relationship. And so we begin to see that basic structure of the church. They have teaching and they have fellowship. What's fellowship? They break bread and they pray. Church. That's what church is, right? That's literally what we do every single Sunday. Anything else we add to it is not necessarily bad, but the core is this. You gather to be taught and to remember the Lord and pray. That's it. Bam. How do you get in there? How do you become part of that? You hear the gospel and you are now baptized then and then you're brought into the fellowship of the church, however that works, meaning membership. So you do those things, and now you enter into the life of the church, the ongoing life of the church of teaching, breaking the bread, and prayer. It's that simple. But there's also, as all things, more to it. So that's the first thing. That's the most basic. Second, go to 1 Corinthians 1.9 with me. There's this intimacy of relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, my prayer this week has been that I can somehow convey to you the beauty of what we're going to look at from here on out. There's just so much here, and I, I my fear is that I'm not going to be able to convey to you the imagery that's in my mind, so pray for me as I preach. He says in Verse 4, and I'll start there down to verse 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you where? 
Where? In Christ Jesus. Notice the word in there. That in everything you were enriched. Where? In him. In all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who also shall also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into what? Into fellowship with whom? His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The second aspect to fellowship is that there is this intimacy of relationship with Jesus. And again, this is not going to be about how you feel. It has no interest in thinking about whether you feel like you have an intimate relationship with Jesus. This is talking about fact. The reality is that if you are uh, saved, then you have fellowship with Jesus Christ. You share in Jesus Christ. And so we have the grace of God in Christ. And who is in Christ? Well, all who believe the gospel. So you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. What do we share? Christ. Fellowship. We have fellowship. We have fellowship with Christ And Christ is our fellowship that brings us together. That's why the early church gathered. We'll get to this once we get to uh, Acts 6, but they were such a diverse group of people from many nations. All of a sudden, they're all saved, and they're all coming together. Why were they coming together? Because they had fellowship. What's the fellowship? They had Jesus. They were all in Christ. And so in verse 9, he says, faithful is God. Faithful is in the emphatic position in the Greek. He's emphasizing not God as much as his faithfulness. How we came into fellowship with Christ is due to God's faithfulness. How? Well, because God was faithful to his Old Testament promises of the sending of a Messiah. He was faithful to send his son to raise him from the grave. He was faithful to redeem us from our helpless condition. We were lost, right? Paul says it in a wonderful way to the Gentiles in Ephesians 2.13. But now, where? In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Some of you can just maybe weep when you consider how far off you were. How far off, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved. And we have fellowship. We who were far off were brought near. Why? Because God is faithful. And so you and I were far off, but we're now brought near, so near that he actually calls us his children. Beloved, that's called grace. Pure grace. So listen, listen, don't miss this. The idea here with the term is not merely then a shared experience. If you haven't noticed, I'm really trying to beat to death that we this is this idea of church has nothing to do with how you feel. It's not a shared experience. It's it's much more and actually much better. It means that we now become partakers, as one commentator said, as shareholder, as sons. We now become sons of God. We become the children of God. Why? Because of our union with Christ. We're now in Christ. So why why is that exciting? Well, it's actually really exciting because we now participate, which is, again, the word koinonia, We have fellowship or we share or we participate in all that is Christ's. And this is where we don't believe it. This is where we forget all the time as as children of God. We forget we're his children. And we forget that we are in Christ. And so his death becomes whose death? 
our death. His life, Romans 6 says, is our life. Why is God pleased with you? Is it because you're unusually obedient? Paul's like, I'm not answering that. That's a setup. <laughs> I mean, right? You're, you're not unusually obedient. Mike, is it because that you're just a, a great scholar of his word? No. It's because you're a preacher or a teacher or whatever? No, it has nothing to do with you. You know why God is pleased with you? Because he's pleased with his son. This is my son in whom I am what? Well pleased. Where are you? In Christ. And so he's well pleased with you. It is so safe. It's such a good place. We have fellowship with the Son. We share in the Son. We share all that is the Son's. So we are now joint heirs with Jesus or Christ. All that is His is ours. We're not paupers. God has richly displayed His grace. His death, his life, and his inheritance, all of it is because of God's utter, incredible, infinite faithfulness. And so this fellowship with Christ becomes a sharing in his life and in his death, and I will develop that in the next point here in point three. The third aspect of fellowship is that there is this intimacy with or through the Holy Spirit. So go to 2 Corinthians 13.13. 13. Last verse. So he's closing up, and these are what a lot of people treat as throwaway verses, but they're not throwaway verses. Every word is inspired by the Spirit. And so he gives this benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The grammar here actually indicates, I won't get into the grammar, you won't care, but it indicates a fellowship or a sharing that's brought about through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us this fellowship. Again, notice there's that triune statement. So here at the end of a very difficult letter where Paul is chewing these people out right and left, he still gives them a blessing because they're still in Christ. But the Spirit is given to us, and we know that because in Acts 2, where we are at, we saw it. The Spirit came, and he filled them, empowered them, but he also indwelt them, which is not the same thing as filling. They're two different realities. He was promised by Jesus Christ in John 14 through 16. And it is with the Spirit that we are then baptized into the body of Jesus Christ, according to Paul. It's through the Holy Spirit that we're regenerated, or as Paul would say in Ephesians 2, that we are made alive together with Christ. Or as Jesus would say in John chapter 3, we are born again. They're all the same thing, regeneration. It's through the Holy Spirit that we share in the life of Jesus Christ. It's through the Spirit that we have a new and living hope. It's through the Holy Spirit that we are set apart for God's purpose. We are sanctified, in other words. Not as objects of God's eternal wrath anymore, but because of the Spirit, we now become instruments for His glory. And through the Spirit, our Father in heaven delights in us. So go into Romans 8. There's not much to develop. He just states that we have this fellowship of the Spirit. But I want to show you what it looks like in Romans 8. Starting in verse 1. So there is now, right now, in this time frame, no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus, right? So we, we have that joy of knowing that we have no condemnation because we're safe in Christ. So notice that in Christ. And then verse 2, the law of the spirit of life where? In Christ Jesus, right? And then we see in verse 3, we see the phrase, 
that he condemns sin in the flesh. Now, what he's talking about there is that Christ took on flesh so that when he died, he would condemn not us, because there's no condemnation, right? He condemned what? Sin. How? In the flesh. That's why he took on flesh, that he might become sin and then die and deal with that sin. So instead of condemning us, he condemns sin, and therefore we have that because we, and we share in that because we're in Christ. And then verse four, so now we walk according to the spirit. I want you to see how he's going between the, between Christ and the spirit just effortlessly. So we now walk according to the spirit. And then verses eight and nine, he talks about those who are in Notice that in the flesh, that, that means in Adam, it, before having come to faith, they cannot please God. But if you're not in the flesh, verse 9, but where? Now you're in the spirit, not Christ, because they're really one and the same. Don't accuse me of modalism or something like that. Meaning you're, you, you have, you're in, the, in the spirit and you're in Christ, then you can please the Lord. So, so the whole point is this, this fellowship that we have. In verse 10, Christ is in you, so you're alive. In verse 11, the Spirit is in you, therefore you will be raised. Why? Just because Christ was raised, and you're in Christ or in the Spirit. And so you will share in that. This is what it means when it talks about this fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship, the sharing, the participation is that the Spirit puts you in Christ, keeps you in Christ, and moves you through a life of being in Christ. And so we have this fellowship with Christ. We have this fellow, which is not us having this cool experience. It is that we share now in the life of Christ, and we share now in the life of the Spirit That's what fellowship means. We're sharing, we're participating in this life. And we did nothing to deserve it. Not one thing. It's just ours by grace. The fourth thing then is that there then becomes, if you and I've already said in a bunch of different ways, there is an intimacy then of shared faith and hope through the gospel. So now go to 1 John, and we'll be there for the next few points. First John 1 John 1.3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, what is it, that you are, why, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship, so twice the term is used, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our next point is that this fellowship is not just with Christ and the Spirit, but it is also a shared fellowship that we have together. Now, the, the, the term we proclaim in verse 3 is actually the main verb. And so all of verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 are all built around what the apostles proclaim. In other words, apostolic teaching. So why were the apostles teaching? What was it that they were teaching? Why do I teach? Well, the key word for you to uh, circle if you're given to that would be the word that in verse 3. We proclaim for a purpose. What is the purpose? That you and I might have fellowship. But what kind? What do we share or partner in? Well, it's the fellowship that the apostles have with the Father and the Son. So the apostles say, we have this fellowship with our Father and our Savior, and we preach to you so that you might have that same fellowship that we. And in doing so, now you and the apostles have what? Fellowship. So me and Jay, I didn't know Jay until Jay started attending, but we have fellowship. What is our fellowship? Is it because we both like some kind of activity? No. In fact, when you do that, when you build your whole relationship around that activity, whatever it might be, you cheapen it 
Our deepest fellowship is that he's my brother and I am his brother because we are both where? In Christ. And we have fellowship. We have fellowship. This, are you starting to see why Paul then gets so angry when he sees people break unity? You maintain unity. You're jealous about that. Even though you don't have always the same unity over the doctrine, you have the unity of the Spirit and you work hard to maintain that. Even if you have to separate, separate because of doctrinal differences, which is why denominations exist, right? We have the the Reformed, we have the uh, Arminian, we have various different groups, and, and there's certain convictions that this is true, and so instead of breaking unity with each other, meaning we hate each other, we choose to split to maintain unity. We now share together in our common faith over these, these specific doctrines. Maybe it's the issue of infant baptism versus believer's baptism. And yet we maintain unity with each other because I could still look at, like my, bro, my, my pastor, John MacArthur, could look at R.C. Sproul, and there are many things they disagreed with, but they were dear brothers in the Lord. They loved each other, even though they worshiped and pastored different places and had different convictions. They shared the fellowship in Jesus Christ. And so we have this. God wants you to share in that fellowship. We gather together so that we can share and participate in our common salvation. When was the last time any of you have ever heard us do a solo here? I don't think, I've been here 25 years. And with the exception of a couple sung for communion, I don't think we did solos. And there's a reason theologically. It's because it's not about the solo. It's about the sharing. The purpose for our singing is that we together are singing these praises and we're together giving thanks and we're together giving praise. We don't want you to passively watch a, 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 I got the word presentation, a show. We don't want that. We want you to actively participate in this because we share in these things. And that's why in Ephesians, he says that in the singing, we are teaching one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Whether you knew it or not, your singing is instructing those around you certain truths. The fifth fellowship then, this fellowship with God is not a mystical experience, but a genuine sharing in mission and motive with God, or it's not actually true fellowship. Now go down to verse 6 of 1 John. He says that if we have, say we have fellowship with him being God, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we say we have fellowship with God. People do it all the time. But true fellowship has to impact our lives in a radical manner. He would call that your walk. So you say, I have fellowship with God, but you do deeds of darkness. You live in this realm of darkness. Then you're a liar. That's not my words. The Spirit's words. You're a liar. New life brings a new Lord. Forgiveness of sin, but also a new mission, a new marching orders, if you will, a new motive for life. And so an unchanged life is antithetical to a true saving faith. It just is. This is because your faith has found its object, its supreme value and purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you believe what he is, and you believe that he is your Lord because that's what he is, and therefore you follow him. But if you say he is my Lord, but you do not do what he says, you'll lie. And I'm talking about your practice, the the practice of your life, the, the pattern of your life. And so you walk in darkness and not the light of the gospel. Or to put it in John's manner, you do not practice the truth. In other words, truth is not accepted, it's acted upon. You don't just embrace a truth, you act upon the truth. And Jesus is not just accepted, he's acted upon. There's no faith or, in other words, fellowship 
or sharing in the life of Christ if you're not doing it. And so what happens then is fellowship also involves taking on the mission of Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save who? Those who are lost. He says, just as the Father sent me into the world, so I send you. This is our mission. Why? Because it's Christ's mission, and we have fellowship with him. And therefore, we share, and that's all fellowship means. Well, it's more than that, but we share or participate in that mission. However, in verse 7, this fellowship, if truly embraced, also brings us into practical fellowship with one another. So verse 7, and it, but if we walk in the light, meaning we are now practicing the truth, as he himself is in the light, we now have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. And so when you or I walk in the truth, we, we claim to believe, when we walk in the truth that we claim that we believe, we then come into a unique relationship with each other. Here, Picture maybe some show that you can uh, note, remember or something, but it, the, the image in my mind is that some guy is now come to faith, and he's in a jungle, let's say, and he's stumbling along, and then he comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and as he stumbles out, he finds this nice path, a, broad, a, a nice broad path. Don't think it's the one that leads to destruction, okay? Uh, it's a nice broad path. Just work with me on this. And as he's walking along it, other people are walking out of the jungle, and they're like, hey, and you just all start walking together. What, what's happening as you're walking? You're entering into that fellowship. You're all finding the right path, and now you're moving in that. And that's all he's saying here is that what, what happens is that as you're coming along, you, you see other people, and you meet other people, and you begin to share your common faith. And it's not about the Cubs or the Brewers or the Packers or anybody else. It's about Jesus, and that's the only one that matters. And so there's this practical idea. We are walking where? The reason in verse 7 knows, where are we walking? We're walking in the light, right? Who's there? Jesus. And so we walk out of darkness, we step into light, and we find out, hey, that's Kim. Hi. Why are you here, Jesus? Oh, hey, Jay. Why are you here? We're all just walking in the light. We're all there, and we share, and we find out that's pretty cool. We're not alone. We have fellowship. Again, has nothing to do with how you feel, does it? Has everything to do with what is the truth. Now go to 2 Corinthians 6.14. And for time's sake, I'm going to do probably some on-the-fly editing here. So my notes are always given in the app, and you can look at them. But 2 Corinthians 6.14. True fellowship rejects sharing or participating in anything contrary to the gospel. So here... He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. That word partnership is a different Greek word, but it's a synonym of fellowship. And so he's just giving two different terms to describe this fellowship. Simply put, what Paul is dealing with in Corinth is that they're having a hard time extricating themselves out of the world they were saved out from. And so they have friends who are having potlucks and they're offering food to idols and, and all kinds of stuff is going on. And in some of this, they are getting together maybe to celebrate some festival for another God. And, and their friends invite them to come and say, will you celebrate this with me? Here, here's one that might be for you. Will you come and celebrate First Communion with me and my children? My child is, can take his First Communion. Or we're going to, in the Catholic Church, have them baptized. Will you come? Do you? Or do you not? I wouldn't. I'm, 
You'll have to deal with that in your own conscience. I wouldn't. That's worship. And there is no fellowship with light and darkness. None. There are times where you just have to look at the world and say, I won't have fellowship. I won't participate in that. I won't share in that celebration. And that's what was happening there. It has to do with ministry and worship. And, and we cannot join ourselves in some way or another with the unbeliever because it's darkness and light. There is this point where we go and then we say, I can't go any farther. I can't go any farther. This is why you're, you don't join yourself to an unbeliever in marriage. You marry, but always in the Lord. You, and so everything leading up to marriage is to be with a brother or sister in Christ, nothing else. Anything else, you're playing with fire. But it always has to do with this fellowship that we have. I want to be married to one who shares in my faith. Now, having been married as an unbeliever, and I come to faith in my wife or the other way around doesn't happen, that's a whole separate issue. Christ promised that that would happen. But now, as a Christian, as a single man or woman, as a Christian, you're commanded to do it only in the Lord, according to Paul. And so we reject anything where that kind of call, where we try to join the church and our common faith to things that are contrary to the gospel. So why does Missio Dei Fellowship reject the critical race theory? It's because it's, it's darkness, and it belongs to darkness. It's built around a, dark, a fallen world's idea of system and right and truth. Why do we reject social justice? The same reason. It's an alternative to the hope that's bound up only in Jesus Christ. You want to have unity? Come to faith and practice that. It's never going to come through some artificial means. Finally, genuine fellowship is sharing or participating in the needs of the gospel. So go back to Acts 2. And we'll, we'll develop this in more detail in a few weeks. But in verses 44 to 45, it says, And they and all those who had believed were together, and this is that fellowship idea again, were together, where am I at? I lost my verse. Okay. And had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were, here's the key word, sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so now we see this radical action where now as they were gathering together, they found out people had need, so they would willfully sell so they could give to those people who have need. Now, this has been an abused passage, so I'll develop it very clearly in later messages. But what I want you to see is this fellowship is not just some vague spiritual thing. It impacts your pocketbook. You now, because we share in our faith and our love and our devotion, we are joined together in Christ. We now share all things with one another. What that means, I will get into more. But simply put, it is this idea where you participate in the activities of others by supporting them. It's that simple. And so Philippians 1.5, we won't turn there. You can look at my notes and you can look at it on your own. But he talks about how they had this, that they shared with him or participated in his ministry. Well, how did they do that? They gave him money. They couldn't go and they couldn't do the work that Paul was doing, but they could participate in it by supporting his labors. That's what you actually do, whether you know it or not. When you give, when you're giving, you're supporting the labors of this church. So you you support me, you support Grace, and you support Matt Miller up in Milwaukee. You're supporting us so that we don't have to work, but rather we can devote ourselves to these things. You're supporting this church. You're supporting now a, a new school, all of it, and you're sharing you're fellowshipping. So every time you give money, you are having fellowship, whether you feel it or not. And so that's what every one of these passages talks about. Uh, in 1526, he uses the word koinonia twice, and, and it's a contribution. In fact, 
the word contribution is koinonia in that passage. So when you give your contribution, you're giving your fellowship. You're saying, I want to participate in that work. Notice at the bottom of page 9, in 2 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14, he says, because of the proof given by this ministry... They will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the, of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your fellowship to them. That's the word, the fellowship to them and to all. While they also in prayer on, by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God. He's talking about an offering he was going to take up to care for the poor in Jerusalem, the poor Christians. They were suffering, suffering great because of their faith in Christ. And he says, you are sharing in their sufferings by giving money to help relieve them. How do they share with you? By prayer. They have no money, but they can pray. All of it is sharing. All of it is this fellowship that we have. And so that's what fellowship is, and I hope that's been helpful. It's, it's a simple word, but it's so rich. The gospel does things to those who believe and those who also reject. The gospel has a way of separating us, doesn't it? Simply because it changes us. And so where we had friends and we walked on the same path together, now one of us is in Christ and one is not. We find those has diverging because they have fellowship with darkness and you have fellowship with light. Now we need patience and kindness and grace to those people who walk that way. We don't then just ignore them. We extend to them the grace found in the gospel. But we also need to have conviction and courage to stand firm on that common faith we have. We do not deny Christ for the sake of getting along or having fellowship. We do, not over, we, we do not break the assembling together because mom and dad are having a birthday party. Just a pet peeve of mine. Maybe you won't appreciate that, but it's like, go late. You'll, you'll find that what will happen is people will all the time plan activities that interfere with your gathering of the saints, so you have a choice every time that happens. You either say, well, we'll skip church because, you know, they'll be mad, or you get them mad and you have fellowship. But you say, well, we have, I'll have fellowship because I'm going to have Wanda over or Joe's going to go fishing with me. We'll just have some fellowship. No, you won't. That's not fellowship. That's just talking and fishing. It might be fun, but it's not fellowship. You gather as a church, you give your funds, you break the bread, you pray, you submit under the teaching of the apostles, and that's fellowship. The thing that has happened with the COVID is how many professing believers actually don't care about fellowship. How many are still watching a video, downloading a sermon and saying, it's the same? No, it's not. And in fact, it at some point calls into question whether you're in Christ. Because that common spirit in which we share and that common Lord whom we are in gathers us. There are times that you may not be able to be with the brothers and sisters, but when you willfully choose week after week after week, that's sin. And at some point it speaks about one's delights and one's heart. So this fellowship is unique. It, it ought to be ultimate one way or another for any believer. Anything else that is greater than your fellowship of the saints is idolatry. And if you think you can get away with it and, and that you can practice it by being away from everyone, you're just simply deceived. So anytime you choose video over physical relationships, just so you don't have to deal with the people, there's something broken in your heart, beloved. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I just want you to grasp that we are called to have fellowship, and it's this common sharing of our faith that we do every Sunday. 
And we can do it again in our community groups, and we can do it with our tea and, and whatever else we might do, but they're always going to be to a lesser degree than when the church gathers. Missio Dei Fellowship actually has the word fellowship in it for a purpose. Missio Dei, the mission of God, and fellowship. It is that gathering together. We're on mission for God, and we have this shared faith that we do, and then we learn it, and then we go back out into the world to share that faith with those around us. And so my prayer is that we will fulfill the mission of God given to each of us in and through this fellowship. Let's pray. So Lord, open our eyes to that. Help us to grasp the beauty and subtlety of what fellowship is. Father, I, I know one sermon won't change people's minds, but I do pray that all of us would enter into a battle and kindly remind one another when we use the word fellowship too loosely that we might begin to cherish all the more why we gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ, why we remember his death, why we end prayers in the name of our Lord. Father, that every time we open the word that we see that part of that is that fellowship, that we might learn what it is that we share together, that we might look at each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God, and that we might delight in them, and that we learn to share life together. Help us to see that so that we, when, when, the, when visitors and unbelievers come to this church, that they see something that's unique, something beautiful, something compelling. For the, the, the believer who is traveling or wandering at this point, that when they come, that they walk away blessed because they were able to share in the life of their brothers and sisters, even if they don't know them, that they walk away encouraged and strengthened in their faith. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us and, and how you instruct us. Help us to see the glories of Christ. We ask all of it in your Son's holy name. Amen.